Welcome to the Public Morality. The U.S. Constitution is 233 years old, making the world's oldest constitution. It has withstood slavery, a civil war, denying women the right to vote, the inconsistencies of civil rights, Watergate, and other challenges that might have been the demise of a lesser document. But have the two past centuries of social, political, and technological changes taken its toll? Recently, the National Constitution Center and its CEO, Jeffrey Rosen, asked three teams of scholars, conservative, progressive, and libertarian, to draft a new constitution each that reflect not only the nation's myriad historical challenges, but also the present moment. The results can be found in a recent article in the Atlantic Magazine, penned by Rosen, entitled, What If We Wrote the Constitution Today? In addition to heading the National Constitution Center, Jeffrey Rosen is a law professor at George Washington University, a contributing writer for The Atlantic Magazine, and the author of several books, including Conversations with R.B.G., Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Life, Liberty, and Law. We're honored to have him on The Public Morality. Jeffrey Rosen, welcome to The Public Morality. Great to be here. Let's begin by having you offer a summation of the project that led to you writing your recent piece in the Atlantic Magazine. So the National Constitution Center had a radical idea. Why don't we get together three teams of top scholars, liberal, conservative, and libertarian, and ask them to draft a constitution from scratch? People are talking all the time about whether or not our constitution is adequate to a changing time, whether changes in technology and politics and values make a new constitution necessary. So we decided to find out. And we got an amazing group of scholars together, all recognized in their fields as leaders, and gave them this homework assignment. And they came back a few months later, and the results surprised us more than we could have imagined. Um, How so? In terms of surprising you, how so? What was surprising was the areas of agreement among the scholars. These are people who are strongly associated conservatives, progressives, libertarians, but without talking to each other, because they all were uh, discussing independently, they converged on a group of really important reforms. Namely, one, popular election of the president, at least two teams, the progressives and the conservatives, wanted to scrap the Electoral College and have a national popular vote. Second, term limits for Supreme Court justices. Again, the the conservatives and progressives wanted 18-year term limits. The libertarians were agnostic, but didn't reject that. And third, significant limitations on executive or presidential power, including all of the teams wanting to make explicit that you could impeach the president for non-criminal offenses, and also shoring up the power of Congress to check the president, uh, including by the so-called legislative veto, which allows Congress to repudiate the president's act by majority vote. I mean, this was really not what we expected, and was all in the framework of the fact that all three, three teams also surprised us by reforming the Constitution rather than abolishing it. None of them wanted to blow it all up and start from scratch. They all used the existing document as a model. They kept the basic structure, separation of powers, checks and balances, a bill of rights, 
and they converged on more reforms than we could have expected. Going back to the comments made about the ability to impeach the president for non-criminal offenses, was that to provide some clarity with, with the somewhat, I guess, amorphous term high crimes and misdemeanors? Yes, absolutely. You know, we, we, after all, we've had two impeachments in recent years, President Clinton and President Trump. In both of those impeachments, there was a disagreement about whether or not you had to commit a crime in order to be impeached or whether you could be impeached for non-criminal activity. And the conservatives, progressives, and libertarians all agreed you can be impeached for non-criminal activity, and they didn't think the existing constitution was clear enough on that point. Now, for the purposes of our conversation, what are we as a nation? How would you define us? Are we a democracy? Are we a republic? Are we a hybrid? How would you define what we are and what this Constitution was uh, being rewritten for? <laughs> well, that's a contested question. And uh, some conservatives tend to emphasize that we're more of a republic. We're not a direct democracy. And the framers didn't intend to create a direct democracy. Progressives want to emphasize the democratic aspects of the Constitution and shore them up. And in fact, our progressive team began by saying the values they wanted most to emphasize were, were democracy and equality, whereas the conservatives wanted to emphasize deliberation and the libertarians, unsurprisingly, liberty. But just being descriptive here, because I'm not allowed to take sides in these important debates, I can just present them. I think it's fair to say that the original Constitution and the one that's still in operation is not a direct democracy in a bunch of important ways, the most notable being the one that's happening as we're speaking, which is the Electoral College. Um, the fact that we do not elect our president by a popular vote and that it's possible to have a popular vote uh, loser still be elected president is one of several aspects in which we're not a direct democracy, as is the Senate, which, of course, very much favors uh, small states over big states. Speaking of that, since you, since you mentioned um, the different teams, the, the liberal team, when I, um, when I read through uh, what they wanted, how they rewrote the Constitution, the liberal team uh, had some very, very different ideas for the Senate in terms of state representation. Talk about that, if you would. They did. And I'm glad that you signaled the fact that it wasn't all, you know, kumbaya and they disagreed on important matters. So I'm calling up the progressive constitution right here. And of course, I, your listeners can go to constitutioncenter.org and check these great documents out themselves. So when it comes to the Senate, they say, our constitution makes the U.S. Senate a more representative body. We see great value in the existing federal structure but achieving the benefits of federalism doesn't require the extremes of the current system in which California has 70 times the population of Wyoming, but the same number of senators. Our constitution, therefore, would reapportion the Senate, guaranteeing one senator to every state, but allocating additional at-large senators based on the state share of the national population. With this system in operation today, there'd be 126 senators, of which California would have 13, Texas, nine, and Florida, seven, 22 states would have one Senator. So that's obviously different than our current system, but it, it, it could have been even more radical. I mean, I wouldn't have been surprised if the progressive had scrapped the Senate entirely and just had a purely popularly represented um, upper house, as James Madison actually originally proposed. But uh, that's not what they did. And they have the very interesting suggestion that, that I just read. Now, by having scholars craft the Constitution from, from, from their respective positions as, as conservatives, libertarians, and, and uh, liberals, 
there were some differences, but by and large, fundamentally, the document was very similar to what was created 233 years ago. It, it, it was similar in having a Senate, uh, a House, a Supreme Court, a presidency, a Bill of Rights. But it, but it is worth delving into the differences among the systems of in terms of everything ranging from the powers of Congress, which are much more dramatically limited under the libertarian constitution than under the other two, to the sort of good government reforms involving voting rights, their important differences in the systems, and also the importance of uh, amendment. Uh, the progressive constitution would make the amendment process uh, easier, allowing amendments by two-thirds of members of each house, which is now two-thirds of the states, but also by members of each house representing two-thirds of the U.S. population. So it's 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 in, the devil is in the details and the, and the angels as well, and it's and it's worth uh, looking at them carefully. One of the things I think we sh- we should acknowledge that the, the the fact that this is the the, the changes that you noted, uh, we're still talking about a document written 233 years ago. So that does say something for what Madison originally crafted. So we must acknowledge that. I don't think uh, my uh, one of my columns could last a year, let alone 233 years. It's remarkable that the document has lasted as long as it has, the longest operating written constitution still in operation, and it's a real tribute to the genius of the founders that it has fared as well as it has. Now, obviously, the world of 1787 is a different world um, than today. And one of the fundamental differences, when this Constitution was created and ratified, there were no parties, political parties as we know them today. Perhaps the closest would be Madison's concerns uh, about factions. But it feels, and these are my words, it feels to me that the political parties today have morphed more into the factions that Madison was concerned about in 1787. And I I was wondering, was this part of the thinking of any of your teams? Yes, that's a central difference, as you say, between the founders' vision and today. They just did not anticipate the rise of political parties. They centrally set up the whole system to avoid factions, and the way the parties operate looks like a version of their nightmare. And the conservative team especially designed the system to resist the powers of parties, especially by creating a president uh, who could not be reelected, a single six-year term, which was the proposal at the original convention, as well as single terms for senators, which were longer, I think, nine years. And the other teams also try to address the problem of polarization by allowing for more independent thinking and not so much partisanship. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with legal scholar and president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, uh, Jeffrey Rosen, and we're discussing his recent article in the Atlantic Magazine entitled, What If We Wrote the Constitution Today? Now, Jeff, you know, we talked a little bit about um, the Electoral College, and um, only the libertarians wanted to keep it. Is that correct? That's right. The progressives and the conservatives wanted a national popular vote with ranked choice voting. Were you surpri- were you surprised? I mean, that that's been a progressive calling card for for a number of years. Uh, were you surprised that the conservatives, the conservative team, was willing to uh, also eliminate the electoral college? Yes, I was surprised. Um, as you say, I, today the electoral college reform is associated with progressives. 
But it was very principled to the conservatives because until recently, electoral college reform was a very bipartisan project. In the 1970s, Senator Birch Bayh of Indiana proposed a national popular vote amendment, which would have eliminated the electoral college. It was endorsed by President Nixon and the Republican Party because Nixon almost lost the election um, because George Wallace was going to pick up some electoral votes. So in 1970, the electoral college reform was endorsed by the heads of the Democratic and Republican parties. What killed it? A couple senators in the South who wanted to preserve their prerogatives and didn't want to empower minority voters. Otherwise, it would have passed. And until very recently, people understood that America is so divided, it's just as statistically likely that Democrats like John Kerry, if he'd won Ohio, could have won the election, even though he lost the popular vote, as the Electoral College uh, is to favor Republicans. So I thought it was great conservatives recognize that. A lot of people get confused because they look at... uh Say that as, as it stands now, the Democratic Party has only lost the uh, popular vote once since 1988, and that would be the 2004 re-election of George W. Bush. But they have twice in this in this century lost the pre- the presidency due to the electoral college. So, what was the the thoughts going in uh, by the founders to create electoral college? The thought was that the country was really big and voters wouldn't know the candidates. So you needed to have wise men. And of course, they were all men. They're all white uh, who would know the candidates and choose the best, the most thoughtful candidates. Now, things didn't work the way they were supposed to from nearly the very beginning, because by the election of 1800, when the political parties were up and running, there was this crazy tie in the Electoral College between Jefferson and Aaron Burr, who was his own vice president resulting in the election going to the House and Alexander Hamilton having to cast decisive influence for Jefferson, which led to his duel with Burr. And basically the 12th Amendment changed the whole system so that you couldn't end up having the president, the vice president tie again, tacitly acknowledging the role of parties and saying that the point of the college had changed. If it was originally supposed to be independent people exercising independent judgment, now it was just a body to carry out the will of the parties. And that's why when the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously last June upheld the right of the 33 states or so to fine electors who didn't vote for the candidates they were supposed to vote for, the so-called faithless electors, Justice Elena Kagan, in her unanimous opinion, said, whatever the original point was, now the point is to carry out the will of the parties. So we, so the Supreme Court has acknowledged the Electoral College today serves a different function than the one it was originally supposed to serve. George Washington was uh, famous for having said in, in describing the Senate that it was the saucer that, 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 that cools the hot tea, and the hot tea being the, uh, the House of Representatives. Again, my words, it seems to me that the Senate has taken on an ethos over time that's closer to the more raucous philosophy of the, uh, of the House. If you, if the progressives were to get their way, uh, hypothetically, with having more more members in the Senate based based on uh, the population of the states, don't we run the risk of, of the, the Senate becoming more like the House, antithetical to what Washington uh, perceived? Uh, we do. I think progressives would say, and they do say, in the, the progressives in the Senate today, that the system is nothing like what Washington wants. There's no real deliberation and cross-party compromise anymore. Therefore, I'm talking about 
political Democrats, not our constitutional team, uh, they've supported filibuster reform that would allow the Senate to operate by majority vote, making it very much like the House, because they say otherwise, you just can't get anything done. So uh, essentially, I think both sides acknowledge that the Senate is not functioning as it's supposed to, but they disagree about how to fix it. If you're just joining us, again, I'm speaking with uh, legal scholar and president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, Jeffrey Rosen, and we're discussing his article in the Atlantic Magazine entitled, What If We Wrote the Constitution Today? You had earlier uh, mentioned uh, wise men, so I want to read from you a small passage about from Federalist 55 and then have you comment mm-hmm. on it. Madison writes, in all very numerous assemblies of whatever character composed, passion never fails to wrest the scepter from reason. Had every Athenian citizen been a Socrates, every Athenian assembly would still have a mob. Now, in that sense, given where we are today, weren't you putting forth a challenge to your teams to address, I would argue, what Madison foretold in 1787? Wasn't that part of the project? Yes, it was. And I'm so glad you picked that passage from Federalist 55, which I think is one of the most clarifying and illuminating statements of Madison's desire not to allow demagogues to arise the way that they did in Athens. He studied the failed democracies of Greece and Rome. He spent the summer before the Philadelphia Convention reading trunks of books that Jefferson had sent over from Paris about how in Athens, the large size of the assembly, 6,000 people, led to silver-tongued demagogues like Cleon, who seduced the people into starting the Peloponnesian War. So Madison designs the whole system to slow down deliberation so that you can't have mobs or factions or demagogues making hasty decisions. Instead, they'll be ruled, as he said in the words you beautifully quoted, by reason rather than passion. Now, obviously, there are lots of changes today that have made that kind of thoughtful, sober deliberation difficult, not least of which is social media, which has communications travel at warp speed and means that the large size of America, which Madison thought would slow down deliberation because mobs would have trouble discovering each other. By the time they did, they'd get tired or go home. All that's out the window in the age of Facebook and Twitter. So one of our projects was, or one of our hopes, although we didn't have specific expectations for the teams, was that they would address these changes in technologies that have undermined some of the expectations that the framers had in mind. And that's why it was so significant that the conservative team made the resurrection of Madison, a Madisonian deliberation, its central value. And they proposed a whole bunch of new cooling mechanisms or speed bumps or road, you know, road bumps, whatever you want to call them in order to slow down deliberation in the age of Facebook. Well, to that end, can our democratic, republican form of government, see, I just took them all, I just made it a hybrid, can it survive on the current trajectory when the only side that I align with are the, only the side that I align with, I should say, are the guardians of truth. Only, like, what what my side says is true, it's virtuous, it's constitutional, and, and, and anyone who reads the Constitution, I think at some point, will, will, be in tension with what the Constitution says and what one believes personally. And I wonder, what were your thoughts about that? I mean, can we move beyond this sort of intellectual stalemate that dominates public discourse? Well, I'm optimistic that we can, because these teams did such a great job at doing that. I mean, it was very inspiring that these brilliant 
scholars who disagree so fiercely took their assignment so seriously, and when they were asked to return to first principles and to debate issues in constitutional rather than political terms, found that they agreed more than they might have expected. So I think there is a great virtue to constitutional debate, not asking what the government should do from a partisan matter, but what are the rules of the road, the framework, the basic structures that guide our debate and our deliberation. And when we do that, I think we may find uh, that we actually can have the reasoned discourse that the framers uh, hope for. I have a, a good friend uh, who is a, a libertarian who uh, we were having a discussion and I, and I told him you were going to be on the public morality. And so he has a question for you. So I told him if, if he uh, put forth the question, I would ask you. And his question for you is having conservative participants who oppose the electoral college, does this raise questions as to whether these are fair representatives of the conservative side? How would you respond to that? I am delighted to report that our conservative scholars are the most respected and conservative scholars in America. And basically, no conservative would question that Michael McConnell, for example, a former judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, who argued the major religious liberty cases before the Supreme Court, is a conservative. No one would uh, disagree that Professor Robert George of Princeton University, who runs the leading conservative constitutional uh, institute at a major university in America is a conservative or that his, uh, their colleagues are. So, and the, uh, the, what makes this so unimpeachable as it were, is that the teams picked each other, that the team leaders would invite their own colleagues to join. So, so the constitution center only the team leader and left it up to each team to constitute itself. So I'm completely confident that uh, if you could look at, ask legal scholars, across America, they would recognize these as the top representatives of their groups, and that's why the results are both so surprising and also so trustworthy. Now, now recently we had uh, Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe on the broadcast, and specifically we were talking about the Ninth Amendment. And I'm curious if any of the teams made alterations to that particular amendment, given its original importance to the anti-federalist concerns, along with the uniqueness that it serves as a guide in reading the Constitution in general? I believe that the libertarian Constitution did emphasize or clarify the existence of unenumerated rights, that is, rights that aren't written down explicitly in the text of the Constitution, because they added a whole bunch of new rights, including an anti-corporate welfare provision. And both the conservatives and the libertarians emphasized the importance of natural rights, the idea that our rights come from God or nature, not from government. Now, the various teams took different approaches to how free judges should be to recognize unenumerated rights. Interestingly, it was the progressives who wanted to constrain rights more by asking judges to balance the rights against the public interest, uh, taking their cues from a provision in the Canadian Constitution, whereas the libertarians would have created a presumption of liberty that would require judges to strike stuff down unless there was a very good reason not to. When it came to reproductive choice, the, the progressives wanted to clarify it, along with LGBTQ rights. It doesn't appear in the current Constitution. They wanted to make clear that it was covered, whereas um, uh, the conservatives uh, were less interested, of course, in, in clarifying that. But all this is to say that um, the various teams were opened to the possibility of unenumerated rights, but they disagreed about exactly how vigorously judges should enforce them.
A lot has been made about the 14th Amendment and its citizenship provision that if you're born here that you are a citizen vis-a-vis illegal immigration. And I was wondering, was, were there any alterations or amendments to the 14th by any of your teams? Yes. Several of the teams clarified and made explicit uh, that people born in the United States are natural-born citizens. There's not a serious legal debate about that, although a very small minority of Scholars have questioned it, but it became more explicit in several of our constitutions. And uh, as I recall, I believe it was, I believe it was the conservatives, because I don't know if the libertarians are, but I believe it was the conservatives that took out militia in the Second Amendment. What was, what would be the significance of that? The libertarians wanted to make clear, they just said the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. So they wanted to make clear that arms bearing, uh, whether or not connected to militia service, was protected and they had the strongest protection for gun rights. The conservatives did add that there's a right of arms bearing for self-defense as well as for the militia, but they said that the right could be subject to reasonable regulation. And the progressives wanted to emphasize the militia connection, but also stressed reasonable regulation. So in practice, the conservatives and the progressives converged on the need for reasonable regulations, which was another really surprising convergence. Um, And it was the libertarians who would have allowed for fewer restrictions. I I mean, my words, but I I have to admit, when I I was reading your piece and and, and along uh, with reading the different constitutions uh, from the the three teams, oftentimes I said to myself, what I'm reading is not the conversation, at least in the public discourse, that we're having. It just seems like what was being put forth is not the conversations that we're, that we're having in the same way. Yes, I felt the same way. And I think the difference is our public conversations are mostly about policy, of course. People, um, you know, should we have gun regulations or not? They're not about the Constitution. They're about what government should do, not what the government allows or forbids it to do. And that's why even the areas of agreement on the Supreme Court tend to be overlooked. So the current U.S. Supreme Court, although they have a big discussion about whether or not the right to bear arms is an individual or a collective right, the way our teams did, most of the justices agree that gun rights are subject to reasonable regulation, although they disagree about exactly how strict that uh, review should be. So in that sense, our teams were mirroring the unexplored areas of consensus on the U.S. Supreme Court today that just get lost in the headlines of all the partisan debate. And they remind us that when we approach issues in constitutional rather than political terms, we're likely to find much more agreement than we think. Any plans for the National Constitution Center to to, to further the the work done by these three teams? I know you you have an outstanding, I I always call it virtual constitution that people can learn quite a bit. Uh, Anything to follow in in that vein from this work? Yes, we're just talking in the past couple of days about the next step, because this part of the project was such a success. And we're interested in the possibility of inviting the teams to reunite and to hold a kind of virtual constitutional convention and to see if there's actual text of any amendments that all of them could agree on. For example, they, they came close to agreeing on the possibility of term limits 
for Supreme Court justices, what would the language look like? And if they agree about the national popular vote, or for you know, if two thirds of them agree, because that maybe that's our threshold standard. You don't need unanimity. If two of the three teams agree, what would a what would a national popular vote uh, amendment look like? That would be really interesting. We haven't invited them yet, so you're hearing it here first. But I think it would be a fascinating experiment. Mm-hmm. And that, that was actually one of the things we didn't get a chance to touch on. But there were did all three teams agree on term limits for Supreme Court justices? No, the Libertarians did not put it in their proposal, but they also didn't reject it. The team leader of the Libertarians, Ilya Shapiro, has endorsed term limits in a recent book, but they made a decision not to include what they called good government proposals, but only those with a clear libertarian salience. So they debated it, but left it out, not because they disagreed with it, because it wasn't within their bailiwick of of, uh, changes. But they might be open to it, and if they debated it, perhaps they'd consider it. And and once again, I'm going to call on your expertise to to, to recall the history, why currently justices um, are appointed for life. What was the thinking behind that? Judicial independence. Uh, the, The desire was that the president should not be able to call up a judge and say, vote for me, you know, during a presidential election. And Article 3 of the Constitution, which doesn't say a whole lot about the judiciary, says that judges are appointed for good behavior, which means for life unless they're impeached, and also that their salaries can't be diminished while they're in office so that the president or Congress can't retaliate against them for the way they rule. Now, that was passed at a time when people didn't live as long as they do now. There was no penicillin. So the framers didn't anticipate terms of 40 and 50 years. And that's why folks are more willing to look at term limits today, even as they continue to recognize the importance of judicial independence. Finally, um, I, I have one last question for you. And uh, before I ask it, I, I think you will know once I ask it why I'm asking you, Jeff Rosen, this particular question. Now, I, I recognize in advance that it's unfair to ask what an individual from the past might think of present work. That said, what do you think Justice Lewis, Lewis Brandeis would think of your effort here? <laughs> Thank you for asking. What do you know is one of my favorite questions. I have a, I have a small pantheon of heroes uh, from, the, from the Supreme Court, and he's definitely among them. Well, I was um, confident when I told you once I asked the question, you will know exactly why I'm asking you that particular question. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate the question. And also your willingness to allow me to presume to channel Justice Brandeis. Justice Brandeis was a great... Uh, apostle of reason. One of his favorite quotations was from the book of Isaiah, come let us reason together. And he had great faith that when given time enough for deliberation, as he put it in his great concurring opinion in the Whitney versus California case, that citizens would be able to converge on, on the truth and that reason would prevail. So in that sense, I think he would have been smiling at the cool voice of reason that emerged from these thoughtful deliberations without understating the significant disagreements among the teams, uh, the areas of agreement are far more striking. And the fact that they were expressed so thoughtfully and that each of the teams embraced the basic framework of our current constitution and its principles of popular sovereignty, protection for rights and uh, separation of powers and checks and balances would have gladdened of the great Brandeis, who was such a foe of what he called the curse of bigness in business and government, and always believed that the point of the Constitution was not efficiency, but 
liberty as well as equality. And I think all of our teams uh, recognize that inspiring principle. Well, I, th- I, I, I would say uh, that one of the things that you, that you are, have already achieved that, this, that I think in the Brandeis tradition, there was Brandeis who said that, that the most important public office is that of private citizen. And hmm. that is what you're doing is appealing to the private citizen to understand where we get the name of our show, our public morality, which is the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Emancipation Proclamation, but understanding our public morality so that we can, as Lincoln said, have this new birth of freedom. So, Jeff Rosen, I want to thank you uh, for joining us today on the public morality. Much appreciated. Well, thank you for all you're doing to educate the public about our public morality. You're exactly right about the Declaration, the Constitution, and the Emancipation Proclamation being our shining founding ideals. And listeners, educate yourselves and keep listening to this great show and go to the National Constitution Center's free interactive constitution online. It's just a feast of learning and light, and you'll hear the best arguments on all sides of our current and historic constitutional questions so you can make up your own mind and cultivate your faculties of reason. And specifically, uh, how do you find it online, the Constitution Center? Constitutioncenter.org, and it's called the Interactive Constitution. It's just amazing. It's gotten a million hits since we launched in 2015, and citizens from around the country are just hungry for this balanced, trusted content about all 80 clauses of the Constitution, videos, podcasts, early drafts of each major provision, and essays by leading liberal and conservative scholars for every clause, exploring what they agree about and what they disagree about, just in the spirit of the Constitution Drafting Project. It's a thrill to be able to offer to the public and to be part of this meaningful educational initiative, and I hope folks will enjoy learning from it. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, We may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us in the public morality, I'm Byron Williams.